All right, First Peter. I was doing a, a, a kind of a couple of lessons on First Peter uh, two or three weeks ago, and uh, I love First Peter. Uh, uh, we were exegeting some of those passages, and I was kind of wanting to be done with it, but I got stuck in my thinking as I was approaching this weekend, thinking about where we're going to go. Uh, I got stuck. I wanted to go back to it, to First Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 15, and uh, I, I want to just unpack a couple of thoughts and hopefully mess with you. And, uh, you know, I, I, I do believe that with the closer you get with Jesus, the more he ruins your life. Because <laughs> he doesn't get away with you doing what you want to do. You want to be mean, he doesn't let you be mean. You want to be unkind, he doesn't, and, and justified, he doesn't let you do it. He's just out to ruin your life. But the good news is he gives you a life that's so much sweeter than what you could have come up with on your own. So it's a win deal, right? But here in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter's writing, he says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and with respect. Now, what I want to address is, and we're talking about this idea of being salt and light, changing the world in which we live and the world in which we work, making a difference. Peter is suggesting here that if, if you and I enter into a serious lifestyle of declaring and revering Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives, that it's going to make a difference in the world in which we live. Now, this notion of making Jesus Lord, you know, we, we sometimes uh, as evangelicals have thought about that as an event, we respond to an altar call or we ask somebody to come and we pray this prayer declaring Jesus the Lord and then we're saved. And that prayer, this event-oriented salvation is, you know, happens and then the next job is for you to get other people to do it. Not understanding that declaring Jesus Lord is much more complicated than praying a prayer. It's much more involved than an event. It's an orientation of your life to the person that you don't see that you move toward with faith. And it's an orientation of bringing others next to you who have, are walking that journey to learn to commit yourself to them and with them and to sort of unearth principles of life and sort of try to carry that out as you walk into a world with all of its vicissitudes and all of its stuff and challenges that are out there. You walk through and you keep declaring Jesus, revering Jesus as Lord. And, and it implies a sense of seriousness. You know, the actual, uh, this Lordship, it, it, it implies devotion. Scripture tells us we're to devote ourselves to things like prayer. We're to devote ourselves to thanksgiving. Paul says in Titus 3 that we're to devote ourselves to doing good. And, and the word devote, interesting word, it actually is derived from a Latin word which means to vow. It comes from a word dovavere which means to make a vow. So when we talk about devotion, we're talking about sort of entering a seriousness of a vow. Those of you that are married, <laughs> you know that when you go forward to that altar, they'll tell you, do not enter this vow lightly. Vows are not to be trifled with. It's something that digs into the seriousness of your soul. It actually comes, the notion vow, comes from this ancient tradition that they observed in the ancient world of warriors that would go to battle. They were vowed to their earthly lord to enter battle and to not retreat. 
That's what vow implies. In fact, it was also expressed in the notion that when they would go by ship, if they were dis- if they were going to go to a foreign land, the soldiers would fill the ships and they would come. And once they landed on the ground and disembarked from the ships, when they got off the ships and looked at their ships, you know what they did with them? They burned them. The burning was vowing. Because what it meant was, there's no way out for us. We're in this. Revere Christ as Lord. This is what Peter says. Burn your out ships. Eliminate any way out of this. You're in this. Jump in with all that you are. And here's what he suggests. He's saying, if you do this, what will end up happening is people will notice you. To the point where they're going to start asking you questions as to the hope that lies in your heart. That seems to define how you live. If you never get asked the question, you're never, you're probably not really doing a good job revering Christ as Lord in your life. If no one ever scratches at you and says, why are you kind like this? Why are you loving like this? It's probably because you're not. And he actually goes on here, and I, I want to talk about the question that he brings, but, but before I do that, I, I want to really look at that last part of that text, the injunction that he gives. He says, when you answer the question, he says, do this with gentleness and respect. Herein is the rub. I think the reason that we don't influence more people is because we don't really respect people. We don't, gentleness is an indication of honor and respect. And, and we don't do that. We don't respect people. We, we kind of, I think the problem is, is that we don't know how to handle truth. We've sort of reduced Christianity to truth propositions. And when it comes to truth, you know, we, we think the truth gives us a license to be rude and to polarize. And, you know, because I'm right and you're not right. And we, you know, respect who cares who you are. It's the truth. Like it or not, it's the truth. Right? There's an interesting text in Psalm 85 that um, speaks to this. It, it says in that particular verse, verse 10 of Psalm 85, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have, they've kissed each other. Now, the reason this is interesting is because it's an odd claim. <laughs> you know, it, in, if not flat, flat oxymoronic, it just, how do these fit together? I mean, how does, how does truth, which is so black and white, fit together with mercy, which is so not black and white? It's neutral gray. I mean, it's just grays, hues. There's no black and white in it at all. It's just like a cloudy day. And yet mercy and truth have met together in this text. And not only that, but righteousness and peace. Righteousness, it's it's that idea of, you know, righteousness according to the scriptures requires vigilance and intensity. Because you're going to live right. You're going to walk circumspectly. And you're going to live right and act right. Righteousness demands being on your toes. Peace is a divine chill pill. It's this notion that all things are okay. It's Selah. Relax. 
you're in. It's Sabbath, baby. Chill out. How in the world does righteousness and peace kiss? They can't kiss. But the idea for us, and we used to sing this actually in the 70s, this verse. We used to say, how many of you remember back in the 70s when all scripture, all songs we sang were mostly scripture songs? Right, so we sing scripture songs. People make them up. This is when mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other in Jesus, in Jesus, in Jesus, the lamb that was slain. Great exegesis for this text. What he's saying is somehow in the person of Jesus, truth so black and white, mercy so neutral gray, Meet. So that somehow you know when you face Jesus, you're facing truth, and yet at the same time you know he's full of mercy. So that if you're not right in all the truth, you're still okay in Jesus. Somehow when you hit Jesus, you know righteousness, vigilance is right. I want to do right, and yet at the same time, peace is present. So that even when I'm not totally right, I can participate in his rightness and have peace. Even though I'm striving for righteousness, they're met, they, they kiss in the person of Jesus. Somehow Jesus solves the dilemma. But you see, we're children of the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was all about truth propositions. And that whole idea, which thankful it was, I mean, thankfully, the notion we can eliminate all mysteries is a great thing because, you know, when you have a toothache and you're thinking it's the will of God, that's not as good as going to a dentist who thought, let's figure out the mystery. How many of you appreciate dentistry? All right, how many of you appreciate Tylenol? Headaches are not mysteries. Right? Take these. So when it comes to scientific knowledge, when it comes to a lot of stuff, thank God people were trying to think it through and not just leave things in mystery. But it doesn't work everywhere. There are some things that really are mysterious. Right? There are some things, and one of those things is this notion of, of, of that, you know, this relationship we have with a person we don't see is with a person. It's not just a bunch of truth statements. And, and somehow what we have to understand, before the Enlightenment, if you asked anyone in the church, what is the foundation of our faith? And they would have responded, Jesus Christ. You ask people in the modern world, what is the, particularly evangelicals or Protestants, what is the foundation of the Christian faith? And they will respond, the Bible. Why? Truth, statements. And because we've reduced our faith to ideas and ideologies, what has ended up happening is that we actually are having a very difficult time reaching people. Because when you want to impact people outside of faith, you can't be rude to them. You can't polarize them. Because ultimately, if you think in terms of truth concepts, and well, they don't think that. This is what's right. They don't believe that. If you're not careful, it's a very short leap to judging and a very short leap, short leap to labeling people. Oh, you're one of those. Well, you don't believe that. Oh, you're one of those. And, and what, what labeling people is all about, you're interested only until you label them and then you're done with them. I, I experience this when people knock at my door. I have this amazing interest. Who's at my door? It gets me off of my blessed assurance. And I get up and go to the door and I'm looking. Who is it? And if it's the UPS guy, <laughs> Or the male girl, oh man, welcome. If it's a religious zealot, not so much. 
or a door-to-door salesperson, not so much, see? I, and there's nothing wrong with kind of being open and labeling people on that level. But when it comes to you going into the job, you going into the marketplace, you going to the gym, you meeting people casually in the church. If you're not careful, you'll keep your label machine out and you'll just talk long enough till you peg them. And then once you peg them and label them, you're done with them. But there's something very, very distancing and demeaning and ungentle and unrespectful about that. Leo Viscalia, he's a psychologist, author. He writes, quote, black man, Chicano, Protestants, Catholics, Jews. All you have to do is hear a label and you think you know everything about them. No one ever bothers to say, does he cry? Does he feel? Does he understand? Does he have hopes? Does he love his kids? Words. If you are a loving person, words will not rule you. You will tell yourself what this word means only after you find out by experience what it means and not by believing what people have told you it means. When I was growing up, I had a very interesting experience. Every Italian was considered to be a member of the mafia. I was called a dago and a wop. You know, kids would say, get away, you smelly wop. I remember going to my father and saying, Papa, what's a wop? What's a dago? He said, never mind, Felice. Don't let it bother you. People have names. They call you names, but it doesn't mean anything. But it did bother me because it was a distancing phenomenon. And they never learned anything about me by calling me WAP and Dago. They didn't know, for instance, that Mama was an opera singer in the old country, and that Papa was a waiter, and we had an enormous family, enough to cast any opera. And she'd sit at the piano and play the complete operas, and we'd all take the roles. We'd all sing, and it was beautiful. By the time I was eight, I knew five operas. I could take any role. They didn't know that by calling me a Dago and a WAP. And they didn't know also that mama believed that garlic was the cure-all for all diseases. Every morning she'd line us up and she'd rub garlic on the little hanky and tie it around our necks. And we'd say, mama, don't do that. She'd say, shut up. She was a very loving woman. (laughs) She'd send us off to school with this garlic around our necks and we stunk to high heaven. But I want to tell you a secret. I was never sick a day. My theory about it is that no one ever got close enough to pass any germs to me. (laughs) It was incredible because I remember getting an award at the end of elementary school for never having missed a day. Now I've become very sophisticated and I don't have garlic on and I get a cold every year. They didn't know that when they called me a WAP, a Dago. If you want to know about me, you've got to get into my head. And if I want to know about you, I can't say she's fat, she's thin, she's a Jew, she's a Catholic. She's more than that. Labels. The loving individual frees himself from labels. He says, no more. End quote. See, people are so easy to label. But it's not respectful to do so. And if you are not respectful, then you won't be part of helping them discover or grow in faith people are not just republicans they're not just democrats people are not just gay they're more than that people are not just people with crazy green hair 
We had a waitress the other day with crazy green hair. You know, so you could just label her the lady with crazy green hair. But, but I thought to myself, when I thought about it, I thought, I wonder who she is. I mean, wearing crazy green hair, <laughs> she's got to be a little fun loving because she's wearing crazy green hair. She might be a hilarious person. She, you know, what, what kind of There should be something in you that asks the question beyond what you're seeing. And not just be thrown by something you see that you don't understand. And just label them and have nothing more to do with them. Because if that's you, if that's your penchant, if that's what you default to, you will reach very few people and no one will ask you a question. I want to reach people. That means you must respect them, speak gently to them, be interested in them, see them. Don't just think me and you don't have an us-them dialectic where you're kind of separating others. What we ought to look at and say is us together. That's what Jesus did. He welcomed everyone. <laughs> the person that was most like this to me was Sister Joseph Marie. She, I knew her in college. She was this wonderful Catholic nun who had the... Her teeth were so buck. <laughs> free! You know, free! They were just buck. In fact, so much so I think, gosh, you're awful confident to smile. I'd be going, oh, hi. You know how we get sometimes that there's some part of us that we don't like? You know, you kind of start covering up. And she'd just go, ha, how you doing? She'd be right out there. And, and, but here's the deal. Everybody flocked to Sister Joseph. You know why? Because you had this sense when you came up to her, you were the most important person in the world. She had a, there you are, not here I am. There you are, kind of thing. And people love to be celebrated. What if the church had more of an appeal to celebrate and welcome people, no matter what they were doing, where they're from, what they look like, what they believe? Maybe people would come to the church more than they go to the bars. But we don't do that. We're, we, we want people to be appropriate. And we think, you know, this is just not appropriate. All right? just, I think if we're going to say the thing, I, mean, I, just, I think that's like, you, know, you don't think right, you don't believe right. And that, what's, what's, what's with the hair? What's with the hair? It's just a sign of rebellion. It's a sign of rebellion. And if you're in rebellion, God doesn't bless rebellion. Rebellion is a sin of witchcraft. And God doesn't like witchcraft. You know, I, I just wish people would accept the Lord Jesus Christ and be more like me. <laughs> you're, you're, you're so tight, you're hemorrhoidal. And it's painful. I'm, I'm right now, I'm just telling you. <laughs> There's so much more I'd like to tell you, but I would be in trouble. So <laughs> We've got to speak gently to people. And we've got to legitimately respect. Do you legitimately respect people? No matter if they're offensive to you in some way. Do you legitimately honor people? If they are completely in a political spectrum that you're not on. If they're for everything you're against. That you can look past all that and say, there you are. Because if you can get there, people will start opening their lives to you. Now here's a couple of thoughts that will help your perspectives. To respect people. These are things I practice. Number one is this. When you meet a person, it doesn't matter whether they're 
black or white or Hispanic or gay or straight or rich or poor. It doesn't matter. They are a dream of God come true. And if you can, you can get that in their head, in your head, God dreamed them to be here. That's why they're here. God imagined them here, knowing they would be weird. God imagined them here. Acts 17, Paul is talking to pagans, to these people that they don't say yes to God. They don't honor God. They worship wrong things. They have the whole story mixed up. They're offensive on so many levels from a truth perspective. And yet Paul said to them, from every person, he made every, he made every nation of people. That people should inhabit the whole earth. And God determined the exact time in history for them to be born. The time set for them and the exact places where they would live. In other words, no one's an accident. He said in Psalm 139 that God saw people when they're in their mother's womb. That when they come out, that God watches them. He knows when they sit down. He knows when they stand up. He knows their thoughts. He knows their words before they say them. I mean, God is just flat in love with humanity. He loves that we're on the planet. He, he wants us to be redeemed. He wants us to experience all that he has for us to experience. And I think his heart hurts if he doesn't. But he loves people whether they're Christians or not. He loves people whether they're right or not. He just is recklessly in love with people. And it's so interesting. One time Jesus is looking at the disciples and he says, you want to be like the father? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, how do we do that? Yeah. Well, preach heavy. Get all up in people's grill. Tell them they're wrong. <laughs> Go on TV. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't speaking pejoratively about PG. Well, I guess I was. Right? <laughs> okay. You know what he said to him? He said, be nice to people who won't be nice back to you. Be kind to people who cannot repay you. He says, for God sends sunshine on just people and unjust people. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You're most like your father when you give recklessly and incautiously and celebrate the fact that humans are on the planet and that God is wild about them. Not only is God, people, people a dream come true for God, but God is also engaged with every human being on the planet. He knows what's going on in their lives and he's working in their lives. He ultimately wants salvation for everyone. But even if they don't understand that or don't grasp that, he's still at work in their lives. We can read this in, in texts like Acts 14. This is where Paul, again, he's with a bunch of pagans around him. It's in Lystra. There sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth. He had never walked. He's listening to Paul as he's speaking. Paul looked directly at him and he saw Something was going on in his heart. He had faith to be healed. And he told the guy, hey, stand up on your feet. And at that, the man got up and started walking. And the crowd that saw what they'd done, they started shouting, whoa! They're going, in the Lyconian language, they said, the gods have come down to us in human forms. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. They thought they had co-opted this miracle, this God event. They co-opted into their pagan story. What if people in the world are always taking God events and co-opting them into false stories? Here's the important part about that. There are God events that continue to happen even when people co-opt them into the wrong story. Why? Because God loves people whether they get it 
or whether they don't. He just loves people. And then he goes on. The, 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 what happened was the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, they brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he, uh, he and the crowd wanted to sacrifice to them. So they're trying to bring these, I mean, they're bringing these animals in front of Paul and Barnabas to kill the animals to worship these two human beings. And God just did a miracle for them. Didn't you mean you think God just looked at that and said, what are they doing? Why did I do a miracle? What's wrong with me? Oh, myself. I can't believe I did that. How many of you think that maybe God knew they were going to be stupid like that? How many of you think just God just smiles and did it anyway? Because God just loves people. And so <laughs> Paul says, guys, they tore their clothes. God, what are you doing? We're guys like you guys. We're bringing you good news, telling you the truth to turn from all this worthless story you got going to God who made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in it. In the past, he let nations go their own way, but, but he hasn't left you without a testimony. What's he saying? Before we showed up, God's been working in your midst. You pagan people, you Hermes worshipers, you Zeus bow downers, God has always been in your life. He's always been testifying to you. How? He has shown you kindness by giving you rain from heaven, crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. God is working in pagan people. God is working in your political opponents. God is working in all the people in the world trying to put joy in their hearts. The thing that makes them happy, that makes them smile, when you get to those friends and you laugh, you hold a baby in your arms and you feel that falling in love with someone. All the joys of the human experience, those are gifts from God. God makes the pagans happy. There is joy in their hearts and they don't know Jesus. Why is he giving it to them? If he just withhold it, let them be miserable. It'd be easier for us to get them, you know, and to get, accept the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. What's he doing? He's messing it up. <laughs> I used to think people that were happy who weren't submitted to Jesus Christ, it was devil happiness. If they had a happy marriage or something, it's a demonic marriage. It's, just, it's a false happiness. It's just like a, it's a demon marriage. How could you not be? I mean, you're outside of Christ, you're a demon. I was an idiot. See, God does good things to people who are pagan. And God does miracles to people who don't give him proper credit. And he still does. That doesn't mean he's trying not to, he wants to call them. But see, some of, he wants them to come to him. He wants them to understand the story. He is calling for people to repent, to understand the true story. I mean, that's what we represent. But we have to first understand, it's still God loves them enough to do stuff with them. You, some of you know people that everything good that happens in their life, they, they have an answer. Well, it's just karma. It's just I have good karma because, you know, I do good karma things and good karma comes back to me and that's why I have a good life. And see, some of you just go, it's not karma, it's not karma. And you're the one manifesting the devils. You can get mad at them just because they co-opted what God's doing in their lives into a false story. You just love them and smile at them and say, well, I don't think it's karma. I think God just loves you. I mean, we need to tell the truth, what we understand, but we should do it with respect and humility and gentleness. 
There's some of you, the people you know, that they just kind of, you know, that they think, well, it's because I'm a, I'm a positive thinker and I draw things to me like the secret. I just get it in my mind. I imagine it. I think it. I say it. I draw it. And I am drawing all this good to myself. I don't think so. I think maybe God's just being good to you. But you can't get mad at them just because they believe in fate or they believe in randomness. Don't get mad at them. Don't think it's your job to correct them into the real truth. Mr. Brother Hemroyd. <laughs> there is a joy outside of accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's human joy. And it's from God. Doesn't mean there isn't a joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. That doesn't mean there isn't a joy that transcends all experience that's in Christ. There is that too. But we should celebrate people. If you don't respect them and speak gently to them as God sees them, you won't be used much. That's why when you meet people, you ought to be wondering in your mind, what's God at work in their lives? How, how are they interpreting the good? My favorite story about this is a neurosurgeon I met in Wisconsin who, who, who you know, he's, he has a good life. He's a smart guy. He has a great family, right? But he's an agnostic, doesn't believe in God. So we're talking about God, and he just laughs at me. I said, I think, no, I said, I'm telling you, God's at work in your life. <laughs> right? I said, listen, I mean, honestly, is there any place in your life, I asked him, is there any place in your life where you have some sense of transcendence, some sense of something bigger than natural? You know, like when you look at your babies or your, your love for your wife, I mean, is there something transcendent in that? He thought for me, he said, well, he says, sometimes when I go hiking or I get out in nature, he says, I mean, there are moments that I feel some kind of a other peace thing, you know, that seems a little transcendent. He said, but that's just nature. I said, no, 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 no. I said, I said what, what if it's not nature? I said, what if that's Jesus? <laughs> he laughed at me. I said, what if Jesus was speaking to you and you just don't know him? He laughed again. I said, I'll tell you what. If you ever think of this conversation, next time when you're out doing something and you come across, like you're hiking or whatever, and you come across the scene and you feel that peace hitting you and you feel that otherly, that transcendent, whatever that is, ask it. Are you Jesus? And he laughed. Right. So in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, what's wonderful about being a Christian is that when you talk to people after you're done talking to them, the Holy Spirit stays with them and bothers them. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. It just pulls on them, see, over and over all through time. And so what ended up happening was three months later, I get a letter from him. He said, man, he said, I'm out on the, out in the West Coast. He's up in, um, in Washington State. And he said, I was going around with some buds on a hike. I was up on one of the mountains. He said, I came around this, this bend on this trail. And he said, I looked out and I saw this glorious, beautiful scene, valley. He said, it just struck me. And I felt that peace. And he said, I remembered our conversation. He said, I was a little hot ahead of the rest of the guys. And I said under my breath, when I felt that peace, is that you, Jesus? He said, you know, just being almost without any faith. He said, was that you, Jesus? Just saying it because I told him to say it. He said, he spoke back to me. It's me. He said, what do I do now? <laughs> I love it when God ruins people's lives. They think they know it and they don't. And then he messes with them. Don't you love it? He mugs them. <laughs> As I love, you know what? We were pastoring in Wisconsin. I'm pastoring and pastoring hard and fast, trying to reach people for Jesus. Only 18,000 people in our town. And man, we figured we could reach them all by the weekend. <laughs> Pre 
preaching, knocking on doors, going on the streets, you know, trying to tell, going to the mall, passing out tracts. Come on, receive Jesus as your Savior. And the more we did it, the worse it got. It made people mad. Three years later or so, I go to this, I heard about this Catholic, Roman Catholic revival. <laughs> right? And I go to this high school and 7,000 Roman Catholics have their hands raised singing, praising God, declaring Jesus as Lord and Satan under their feet. And it was a, it was a Catholic priest who had, he was an evangelistic Catholic priest who believed that people needed to have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And all these thousands of people responding. But here's what I thought. Oh my gosh. Here all this time I'm thinking people are just not open to the gospel. Because we're preaching. We're bringing it to them. They're just not open to the gospel. But it dawned on me. They're totally open to the gospel. They're just not open to me. Therein lies the rub. Most people in your life are totally open to the good news. They're just not open to you, Sister Hemroyd. So you need to start looking for ways to communicate to them. So when I start talking to Roman Catholics or different people from different faiths, I try to find out what they did. So when I talk to Roman Catholics, I say, well, where are you at with your faith? Well, I'm a Roman Catholic. That's awesome. Where are you at? With, are you growing in your faith? What do you mean? Well, does it mean anything to you? I don't know. Says, Listen, you go to communion, right? You take the Eucharist? Yeah. I said, what do you believe about the Eucharist? Oh, this Christ is in there. Well, what are you doing with that? I mean, imagine this. Christ is there. Next time the priest puts that in your mouth and you open your mouth, think, Christ just entered into my life. Open your heart to him. Receive him. Say, where do you want to have more rule in my life? I'm telling you, this is a journey you will not regret. And I've had people come back to me and say, oh my gosh, my life has changed. What happened? When I went to the Eucharist, I opened my life and God has come into my life. I am just, I don't know what to do now. So you just need to find where people are. Find their stories. Encourage them. If people are not, listen, I'm telling you, more people are open to faith than you think. They just don't like you. And they don't like the church. And they don't like our truth perspectives. And we had better quit being so rigid and anal. Can I use that word? Janice isn't here. I can use the word. <laughs> just kidding. I love her. I'm just playing. See, the reality is God's not a proselytizer. I know it. Out, out of the mouth of babes. At last, agreement. <laughs> and let me tell you, you and I ought to be deeply concerned about the faith of people. The people you work with, the people you see at the gym, the people you're around, you ought to be deeply concerned about them. Not to get them to come to sanctuary, but to nudge them and to love them and to be gentle. Some, the, some of those people, the most they'll ever see of God is you. Stand up. Not literally. Almost. <laughs> oh my gosh, stand up. <laughs> you think I'm done when you stand up, but I'm not really quite done. But this is a preacher trick. <laughs> Peter says, I know, no, she's sad. I know, I, I have to finish. She's sad that I'm finishing. <laughs> Peter closes this out. He says, when you, when they ask you the question, answer with respect. And, and here's what I wanted to tell you as we shut up here. 
you've got to be ready. This is a process. Because when you love people and treat them nicely, at first there'll be cynics that when you do that, they don't believe it, so they'll be mean to you. Literally, they'll be mean to you to try to see if what you're doing is fake. And a lot of times when you're being kind to people, loving to people, they were literally getting mean to you. Don't be thrown to that. Smile. It's like my two-year-old grandchildren. When they're mean, I just think, they're two-year-old grandchildren. They don't get it. They're stupid little kids. <laughs> it's cool. I can afford that. See, that's what you should think. You should think, you know, people are being mean to you. say they're stupid little pagans. I don't mean that demeaningly anymore. I do it with my kids. That's where they're at. I love my grandkids and I love the pagans. These people are just not always where they need to be. You'll be people in your life. My sister, bless her heart, she was the sister from hell for at least 15 years of my life. <laughs> she so offended me. It took me years to get over some of the things she did and said to me. And I would keep praying, God, I forgive her. I'd be in moments where she'd come to my mind. I said, Lord, I forgive her. But it was like sending out a boomerang. The minute I forgave her, it'd be a moment and it hit me back in the head. It took years to get that off me. Here's what I tell people. People say, well, I don't understand. I'm having a hard time forgiving. Everybody has a hard time forgiving. Just keep forgiving. It's a process. It's a decision. It's not a feeling. Just keep forgiving. Of course it keeps coming back to you, especially if someone hurt you so deeply. You've got to keep forgiving until it doesn't hurt so deeply. It's just what it is what it is. And finally, after about five years of working through one particular incident, you know, I, I got to the place where I was okay, and, but when I got together with her, oh my gosh, she's a sister caustic. And it took us about 15 years and finally saw some breakthrough. About 10 years ago, saw some breakthrough. And you know now, she's probably my closest sibling. We love her. Gail and I will fly out to, out to, out to um, uh, she lives in Washington, D.C., Go to make sure we go to dinner with her. Just, we love her. Have her come to our house. You know, she's, you know, she's still a bit of a witch. <laughs> but that's okay. We love her. And you know, she got sick. A couple years ago, cancer, and she calls. We pray together. There's, there's some beauty that's there. There's some connection that's there. Sometimes it just takes a while. Just hang in there. That's your calling. Hey, you're, you're reflecting God to them. Do it. Right? And then finally, when there's people that, that do open up, you better be ready. Because sometimes they open up to you at inopportune times. You know, you're, you're doing stuff for them. Love. I had one professor in college who I was loving and I was trusting to be able to share the gospel with. It took me almost all the semester. And I felt like he finally was breaking through. He started telling me stuff. That's how I knew. His marriage was falling apart. His life, he was depressed. I'm thinking, oh, we're getting close. I'm going to be able to share this Jesus story with him. So I kept, you know, every time I got with him, I was looking for an opportunity to try to, you know, to talk, but it wasn't quite time. Well, it was spring semester then, and, and spring came. And there's like this beautiful spring day. And there's only like four beautiful spring days in Wisconsin. There's only like four beautiful days in Wisconsin. <laughs> and so we were out. I was downtown in the area where I was going to college, and he pulled up on the curb, completely unexpected, out of context. He pulled up, rolled down his window, and said, Ed! I said, Doc, what are you doing? Leaned into the window. He said, can I ask you a question? He got real serious. I said, what? He said, why are you so happy? And he actually said this. He said, it's, not, it's more than happy. It's like you have a joy. Why are you like that? And I heard this coming out of my mouth because I was so taken aback. I heard this come out of my mouth. I heard it. Oh, I don't know, Doc. I guess I'm just sort of a happy guy. 
And he looked down, said bye, and pulled away. And I, I, I felt like I died. I thought, what did I just do? What did I just do? I, I can't tell you how oh, horrible a feeling that was. I finally got enough courage over a few months that I went back to him. I said, Doc, do you remember that day? By that time, he just didn't want anything to do with me. He didn't want anything to do with my Jesus story. You're not going to be perfect at this. But God will use you. Let's be open.